Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Quadro Caramentang. Now, he is a pretty remarkable guy. He's an ICU, an intensive care unit doctor in Ottawa, Canada. But he's also got a master's of health administration. He's a podcast host. He uh, runs the Resource Optimization Network, which is a, a research institute um, with the goal of, of um, transforming healthcare and optimizing the use of healthcare resources. And he is a, a really passionate and powerful voice that I think really deserves to be listened to. We talk about a number of different things in this episode, including COVID. I mean, he is a, the epitome of a frontline COVID worker and his, his take on metabolic health and um, prevention of, of severe COVID infections and the importance of metabolic health is an important message that, that I think we all need to hear. Um, and also Ottawa is doing something really well with COVID because he said he actually mentions that he hasn't seen many cases lately um, because they, they've done a good job of, of preventing it. But also um, we talk about so much more than that. I mean, we talk about low carb, he's sort of new to the low carb space, but what he sees as the benefit of it and how sort of his eyes were opened by it. And, and we talk a lot about, um, about race and ethnicity and socioeconomic class and how that impacts healthcare and sort of the steps that need to be taken to break that down to, to reach more people um, and really um, spread the message of uh, health promotion um, to to prevent disease and and promote health for all of us, not just those who can afford it, not just uh, Caucasians and upper socioeconomic classes, but for everybody. So we kind of run through the gamut here, but I really think you're going to appreciate his enthusiasm, his passion, uh, and his message. So. So enjoy this episode with Dr. K. Dr. Quadro Caramenteng, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Brett, I got to tell you, this is a true privilege. I've been jammed up and excited to do this for a while, so thanks for having me. Well, I've got to say, I've been looking forward to this because every time I hear you speak or watch a video, your energy is like so palpable that it just pumps me up. So I thought, wow, this, okay, there's going to be something about this interview that we bring it up a notch in the energy level, I think with you. I so that's it. pretty awesome. I love it. Thank you, yeah. buddy. But you're not just about energy. So let's talk about you a little bit. I mean, you are an ICU doc in Ottawa. Um, you mm. have your own podcast. You have your own research facility or research institute where your mission is to uh, no less than just to transform healthcare, which isn't exactly a small mission. Mm. You're a pretty motivated guy here. Tell us a little bit about your journey and and kind of how you got to this point of of wanting to do your own podcast, having a voice that that you want to be heard, and having a mission to really impact healthcare. Oh, great question! Thanks for that, Brett. It, honestly, it came fairly early in my career where you would see how inefficient our healthcare system was and the deficits in the healthcare system. And I, I give this quick story about uh, a young trauma patient that was trached that uh, was heavily reliant on getting chest physio to try and improve his, his oxygenation and so on. And we go into a long weekend and it's an era of cuts. And so on the, on the long weekend, doesn't get its physiotherapy and ends up back in the ICU because of mucus plugging and inability to clear his own secretions. And I remember thinking to myself, this is absolutely wrong. Like mm -hmm. to think that we are cutting in areas that we know are beneficial, like we need to do better. 
And so my whole area of research, I, I looked at ways of making healthcare more sustainable. And so we, we formed this resource optimization network and we've been productive. We've been producing these papers and, and really proud of our group for, for doing this. It's a multidisciplinary team. And honestly, nothing was changing, Brett. Like we were saying, hey, you know, this is some evidence-based practices that are going to help reduce spending and improve the well-being of our patients. Like what's happening? And so we thought, you know, maybe we got to change gears a bit. So we, we started our podcast, Solving Healthcare, and just we thought, hey, you know what? Like shows like yours that, that are able to vocalize and express these novel ideas to people and have a bigger reach. Like nobody's reading the Journal of, of uh, Intensive Care Medicine that like my neighbor's not reading that, right? But right. they might be on Twitter. They might, everyone listens to podcasts. So we thought, hey, like, let's get that reach. Let's people know where our deficits are, what is working and motivate people to get things moving. And so, yeah, we formed, we started the podcast about a year ago and my life has changed ever since. It's been incredible. Yeah. Tell me how your life has changed. Well, you know, it's um, in so many ways. I, I, you know, for example, I'm meeting you for the first time today, like somebody I've uh, looked up to for a, a very long time. And, Thank you. Um, but you, we, we start seeing um, more conversations are having, at least locally, about some important issues like, you know, um, we've interviewed people such as uh, child psychologists, right? Where we know uh, childhood. Um, well-being, their anxiety, depression is is increasing. And so we talk about ways that we could address that. And through that, you know, there's been some initiatives. We had a, a charity called uh, Bridges Over Barriers that started. And it was clear to some of our listeners that if we were to invest in kids that are of, in need, like this would be a way of them getting past some of these, you know, these um, obstacles. And so we we started this this charity raised almost seventy thousand so far. Um, right. That's one example. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that have, have changed my life. I've just I've given me a platform to talk about so many important issues, including um, you know well, obviously we're talking about a low carbon and keto summit we've done. Um, I've been quite active locally about Black Lives Matter and anti black racism. Um, you know, I've recently been appointed on a board of uh, our children's hospital, which would never would have happened without the podcast. And so, like, really, really, the, my life has changed in such a good way. And I feel like we our reach is so much more now. Yeah. And I think I think that shows just how important your message or messages are. And you have you have such you have a lot to say about a number of different topics that really hit home in a number of different ways and are timely and are prescient and and so needed. So I think that's why you're seeing these doors open, which is wonderful. Now, now you that. mentioned the low carb summit. So so you were an ICU doc working in the intensive care unit, seeing mm. the sickest of the sickest patients on breathing tubes, needing medications to support their blood pressure. Um, you're, I'm sure you're seeing a ton of COVID patients and you're You've done a number of um, episodes on your podcast about COVID, but then here you are doing a low carb summit. Um, so tell us about what brought you to the low carb summit, what inspired you to do it and, and how that sort of connects to your medical practice. Yeah. Great question. So it was very clear early on in this, uh, in my dealings in the pandemic uh, in the intensive care unit that 
the risk factors of obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension were real, absolutely real. You know, um, almost to the point where I, I even felt, and this is anecdotally just from what I was seeing, that even more so than age, if people had these meta, poor metabolic health, this was an issue. And so, um, you know, and I, I, I still remember one of our, my first patients was um, a guy my age, you know, he was type two diabetic, but, you know, very functional family man. And he was so sick, ended up on the most amount of oxygen we could provide, needed to be on dialysis. And I remember looking at our team, this is in the beginning of COVID. And I'm like, we can't lose them. Like, this is, this is crazy. This is scary. And, uh, you take, you know, you go back weeks afterwards where things start to settle down and you look at what, what, um, what brings people here and it's the risk factors. And I remember talking to a colleague and I'm saying like, you know, now that COVID locally in Ottawa timestamp it, it's, you know, August 12th when we're doing this or August 13th, um, when we're doing this interview that there's very low incidence. Like for example, in our ICU, hadn't seen a case in over three months. Oh, wow. And yeah, exactly. And I'm telling myself, why are we not sending a message to the public that if we get healthier right now, you re- will, can reduce your risk of getting sick from COVID-19. And I'm, and just to put some context in a Brett, like I'm new to the nutrition space. Like I, I'm not low carb. I'm not keto. I fast. That's my, maybe I've been doing that for two and a half years. And then I'm learning about this stuff. I'm, you know, I'm learning from from you guys at Ivor on the show, um, and I'm learning that you can reverse and and keep in the context of this too. Like I'm I'm 15 years out of medical school, and and this is new concepts to me. You could get people off their antihypertensives, their diabetic meds, in weeks, yeah. and I had no idea. People telling me this, I'm like, what? And so then you go and you look into this and I'm like, this is an opportunity. Are you kidding? Like when, especially locally where COVID has settled down, like in, in terms of, you know, sick patients coming into to hospital or in the intensive care unit, I'm like, man, if this is a story, let's preach this. Let's get our patients healthier, metabolically sound, and we could do this in weeks. How is this not being screamed to the world? Yeah. And, and so, and once again, I get paid to when more patients I see, I get paid. I don't want to see sick patients. And this is such an easy, efficient way of, and sustainable way of getting people healthier. I just, I, it baffled me. So then because of this, I'm like, let's do our part. We'll have some guests on the podcast to talk about this. Let's do a low carb summit um, and, and really inform the public on ways that, and on why this works. And this is like my mission right now. Amongst yeah. many, but this is a big mission of mine right now. Yeah, I, I love that word. enthusiasm. I mean, that's what we need, that eye-opening enthusiasm of well, how did I not know this and look at the impact we can have on people. But it's also the surprise, and that's the surprise that so many doctors go through to say, like, how did how is this not taught to me? How is this basically how were we basically taught the opposite of this, mm. this, but here's this powerful intervention. And I, I need to touch on something you said that you said you get paid the more patients you see. And that's sort of our system, right? The more, the sicker the patients, the more patients in the ICU, sort of the better it is for the hospital and the better it can be for the doctors. Mm. But that is the exact 
opposite incentive that we should have. We should have this incentive to keep people healthy and keep people out of the hospital. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I assume that's part of then what you're doing in your mission to um, kind of revive healthcare and completely revolutionize healthcare is is focusing maybe more on the prevention. Is that something that you're trying to work on? Absolutely, because people have no idea how much, how costly coming into the intensive care unit is, for example. So if I were to tell you 1% of your gross domestic product goes to treating critically ill patients, like... That like 1% of a lot is a lot. Okay. <laughs> and to think that we could be, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's similar in the States where, you know, our baby boomers are getting into prime time usage we, of, of healthcare. We're always looking at ways that we could make it more sustainable. And, and yes, I get paid more patients I see, but I don't want to see you. You know, I, I really think, cause when you come to us, it's not easy. We we put our patients through a lot, and a lot, and their outcomes aren't as good as people think. Like we might be able to salvage your life, but functionally, the person that you come out of come out of uh, your intensive care admission, like you're 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 disabled, like mentally, yeah. physically, emotionally, PTSD, like all these bad things, and like we all got into this game of medicine to help people. And honestly, I, I don't think we talk about it enough how we can prevent you from walking in our door. Like yeah. really save it for the people, like re- reduce the amount of of people coming through because if you need to come through, it's not an easy road. It's a difficult road. And um, so I I just really wish that, uh, you know, in, ter- in terms of even our studies, if you look in, in my world, the critical care world, nothing's on prevention. It's all about, you know, what are we, this medicine, this approach reduced their days on the ventilator by 0.6 hours. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, let, let's look at real outcomes. Let's like, let's yeah. think of measures that's preventing people from walking in our door. I don't know. I, yeah, it's, it's, a, um, it's a great perspective. And especially because, I mean, look, when I was, I remember when I was a resident and, and start in a fellow starting out in cardiology and it, it was magical. The things you can do in an intensive care unit for people who are basically almost dead and you Mm. can revive them and give them their life back. It's sort of magical, but what Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily see is the life they're returning to is far from the life they started with. And that's exactly what you were just alluding to that months and months, if not years of physical therapy and emotional therapy, and they may never get back to the point that they were. So even though their life was saved, their life was dramatically changed. So if you can prevent that, it's so much more powerful. So mm-hmm. since you were, we were talking about COVID and the definite risk factors of hyperglycemia and diabetes and obesity um, that worsen outcomes, I mean, we don't we have the evidence to support that. We don't have the evidence to say that any preventive measures um, for lifestyle can therefore prevent COVID mm-hmm. just because it hasn't been studied. But do yeah. you think it just makes it just makes sense that if we could get people to focus on metabolic health now? get them to uh, reverse their metabolic syndrome, their their prediabetes, their diabetes, that we would see a fraction of the people in the ICU that we do now here in the United States and in other countries that are still seeing an uptick? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, point because to, yeah, as, as you brought it up, Brett, like it isn't an evidence-based uh, recommendation and it's just because it hasn't been done. But right. everything in the ICU is all about inflammation. It's all about... It's all about, um, you know, um, we see our patients 
that are diabetic. I'm t- like, aside from COVID, you come in obese and diabetic, hypertensive, you do worse, period. Whether you have ARDS, which is um, acute respiratory distress syndrome of the inflammatory lung, if you have uh, a severe infection like septic shock, all these are risk. Uh, you, you being metabolically poor all results in poor outcomes. So even if I'm wrong here about COVID, if we're all wrong about improving metabolic health, you are still preventing other diseases, cancer, heart disease, all these other things. So to me, the narrative, you know, with COVID, if we, there's so little downside to adding that as part of the narrative, I just, I don't see why we're not doing it. And so I, I, that's where I come from. Like when you, when you know, because I, I think we do talk about evidence base a little bit too much and in in the sense that like there's even in, in ICU, like not every single intervention we do is a hundred percent evidence based. There's still that art element of 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 treating our patients. But this something like this where the downside would be I mean, I can't really appreciate a, a true downside of, of of bringing up that message. I you know, I, unless yeah. uh, Brett, I, I don't know if you could think of a significant <laughs> no. uh, downside. I, I can't really, but you know, I guess if someone was going to dramatically try and change their lifestyle and start fasting and start a keto diet, like when they are acutely first acutely infected, you know, you could say maybe that's too many changes going on in your body at once and too much stress at once, but to do it from a preventive standpoint when you're well to say, you know, put myself in better condition if I do get this infection or get in a car accident or get septic shock or have open heart surgery or whatever the case may be, if I can get rid of my metabolic syndrome and lose 30 pounds and improve my diabetes, my type 2 diabetes, and obviously you are in a better better condition. And, you know, there's plenty of literature of people who are in the hospital, especially like after cardiac surgery, and they do better when their blood sugar is under control. So everybody who comes out of the operating room after heart surgery is put on insulin of some sort to control Mm -hmm. their blood sugar. But they're also getting maybe IV fluids with sugar in it, basically uh, what we call D5W or... Or, or, um, and they're, or they're getting enteral feeding where they're not eating yet, but they have a tube put in and they're getting sort of a high carbohydrate type yes. feeding. So it's like we're driving their blood sugar up only to give them insulin to bring it down. So I guess my point of bringing this up is, is there a better way uh, potentially and can patients sort of be their own advocates? Like could someone come in and say, hey, I don't want, sugar in my IV fluids because I'm low carb and I burn fat for fuel. And mm-hmm. if someone said that in the hospital would the surgeon or the ICU doctor sort of look at them sideways and say, what are you talking about? Don't tell me how to do my job. Like what, what do you think about that whole concept yeah. of, of a low carb patient sort of advocating that way for themselves? I love the que- I love that question. So to start with, in terms of um, what we're giving our patients. So once again, I'm new to the nutrition space. And when I looked at some of the stuff that we're giving, like so enteral feeds, so feeds that are from a tube going into the stomach, as you put, a lot of glucose, a lot of uh, seed oil in there. And like I said earlier, everything is inflamed in the ICU. You're there because of inflammation. So I, I find it actually quite eye-opening when you look at the content of what we're giving our patients. And so actually, we, we're actually meeting tomorrow, one of our... Uh, 
our, our small research group and our nutritionists because there, there are some uh, enteral feeds actually that are low in carb, uh, more high in fat content and asking ourselves, maybe this might not be the right thing, especially too. like we also give our when we feed in the ICU, it's 24 hours, right? Like it's not it's not feeding during your normal circadian time. And I'm not sure where this background, where this came from. And this is a place where delirium is high, poor sleep is high, um, you know, and it might be one of those things like medicine's slow to adapt. Like it might be one of those things that this is the way we've done it. So this is the way we're doing it. And so like getting to your question of, you know, if a patient were to ask me, like I'm fat adaptive, like why are you giving me this? Is there other approaches for me? I mean, I'm, I'll tell you this much. Most docs are going to be looking at you like you're you're sideways, like something's wrong with you, right? This is not, they're not, most docs are unattuned to this. My personal bias is unless you could, if if I know it's clearly going to harm you, that's one thing. If I don't think it's going to harm you and we can mutually agree that we're on uncharted waters, I'm okay. You know, and I, I don't know how much, options you truly have with when you're in the intensive care unit but i do think personally if you you're coming to the hospital especially you're have you had your operation your your post-op you you and you're you know relatively improving and you you ask yourself do i really need to eat what's on this tray or i i i can't see why you shouldn't do that you know what i'm saying yeah yeah, I think that's so interesting because I, I do spend a lot of my time trying to help people communicate with their doctors, and but it's all focused on an outpatient basis. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it or talked to many people about what happens when you're in the hospital. How do you communicate with your doctor if you're in the hospital? And um, it's, it's going to be difficult, like you're saying, mm-hmm. because people aren't used to that and people have their way of doing things. And and docs don't always like to think outside of the box. So mm-hmm. I don't know, is there any advice, um, I'm putting you on the spot here, but any advice you could give to somebody to kind of make that conversation a little bit easier and to try and make that ICU doc or that surgeon sort of think, okay, maybe I do need to step outside of my bias here and listen to what this person has to say. Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I, I think the way I, I would approach it is, always in a lens of like you it's like a mutual discussion it's like a non-confrontational discussion it's hey you know this is what i know about this when i look this up i know i i'm playing dr google here or what have you but just to be just to be clear like i'm i'm fat adaptive and this is where i would like to try can you think of any downsides of me trying this method of of get providing nutrition to my body and you know most I, I would say most docs when when you can clearly illustrate that there's probably no harm in you trying and that you understand what the risks are most docs would be open to things but you're gonna have uh, resistance for sure yeah. nine like, times out of ten i like the way you said that though i think that's that's probably the take-home is saying, listen, help me. Can you see any downside to this? Not like, this is what I'm doing. Yes. Prove to me there's no downside, not the confrontation, but like, help work with me. Can can you see any downside to this? I I like that approach. I think that was yeah. a great suggestion. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> My wife's a psychologist, so I'm always like, 
learning from her. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that interesting, right? Like how psychologists might teach you to communicate with with your spouse or with somebody else. It's the same as communicating with your patient. It's the same as patient communicating with your doctor. It's just humans communicating with humans. So it's it's all about how you phrase it. Oh my God. I can't count how many times I've learned from her and it's literally affect how I communicate with patients. Like when they're frustrated and to, to one of the key things is to, to like really bring up the emotions. This is one thing that Kathy shout out to my wife, uh, really has helped me in terms of dealing with patients. Cause I also do palliative care too. You know, it sounds like you're scared. Sounds like you're angry here. Like, tell me more about that. Like, and you know, it's all about creating rapport too. Right. And when you have that rapport, you have that trust, everything is better. And so, uh, shout out to my, my, my wife there, Kathy can do it without you. Sounds (laughs) like she's done a good job. She's taught you well. That's good. So, so while we're on the topic of metabolic health and trying to, um, focus on prevention as you're looking for ways to optimize healthcare and to do research and to really have your platform, why do you think there's such a barrier to focusing on prevention and to focusing on metabolic health. And it just, it seems like hospitals and healthcare systems may sort of say they're interested, but there's really a barrier of making it a top priority. Why do you think that is? And what can we as everyday people sort of help to break down that barrier? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Like I think in terms of hospitals, like depending on if you're in the States especially the more patients you see, the more money you make, the sicker you are, the more money you make. And, and it's a for a lot of these places are for profit. And when we come to pharmaceuticals, when it comes to the industry, there's when you could take a, a pill or three versus change your diet, there's not an incentive there. There's not that platform. That's one barrier. The other barrier too is, and and forgive my ignorance to a certain degree, but when it comes to these studies, when it comes to nutrition, I personally find that they're all over the map. Like it's Mm -hmm. really hard to really know what's what, um, you know, based on not only the end result, but the quality of the studies, like a lot of these, like um, these studies are often like, like surveys. So it's based on memory and like Mm -hmm. how reliable is that? You know, it's not too many RCTs on um, uh, that, you know, on a lot of the concepts that we're talking about. And so I think from the medical point of view or from among clinicians, you're preached to the death, like evidence-based, evidence-based, evidence-based. And especially, I mean, I'm thinking about you and your world in cardiology, like, you, you mean, everything is RCT and patients of like thousands uh when you're looking at things and so i think that's our world and so i think that's a barrier too but i think what um what needs to change is you know uh, i'm wondering if there's a a lot more opportunities for more rigorous studies like now that it's becoming more and more uh known about the benefits of of some of these methods like low carbon keto you know i think also the continued testimonials like in like it's because you gotta you gotta speak the the uh the language of your crowd so like you know us docs yes you need that evidence base but the the our patients our 
family, when they see the stories, when they see the, you know, Barry from across the street lost 30 pounds. Um, like one of the, the stories that I loved was when I was uh, partnered when uh, that, that COVID uh, patient I was talking about earlier, the really sick one, uh, the diabetic one. One of my colleagues, he's, you know, he had that poor metabolic profile, another intensivist. He's, he saw what we saw and he's like, this is not going to be me. He lost 30 pounds, mostly through fasting and, and a bit of low carb. And, you know, and we all see it. The nurses yeah. see it. His family sees it. And the amount of people that approach him talk about, what did you do? And, and talk about fasting, talk about low carb. And that was just such a beautiful trigger to start the dialogue and people to see it. I actually put him on the, put him on the show just to say like, hey guys, this is a guy that took it seriously and now he's improved his metabolic profile significantly. And so, you know, depending on your crowd, testimonials, and I, I do wonder if there's an opportunity still to do more rigorous research in, in terms of uh, low carbon keto, but, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to get my head around some of the, the studies. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points there. I mean, you're right. Nutritional science is all over the map. And especially when when we rely upon poor quality nutritional epidemiological studies and mm. and with the healthy user bias and food frequency questionnaires with inaccurate recall and tiny hazard ratios. and mm -hmm. But yet somehow that gets pumped up to being sort of definitive evidence of proof one way or the other and, and gets written into guidelines when the strength of the evidence doesn't really support how loudly maybe people are, are screaming from the rooftops about these results. So mm. I think that's a great point. And that's confusing. Um, that definitely is confusing. But but then I love how you brought that back to leading by example. That doctor was leading by example, taking charge of himself and other people take notice. Because let's be honest, like doctors, when it comes to health, doctors are in a, a leadership position, whether you want to be or not. How we live our lives personally, how we represent our health personally is noticed by patients, is noticed by others. And Absolutely. Like yeah, how like, ironic is it when you're, you're getting a diet advice from the 250 pound family doc you know what i mean it's like oh you should be losing weight i'm like what yeah like 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 and you're giving me advice right now and the beautiful thing about when us clinicians leaders are doing this stuff like we're not, the, the the beautiful thing about be, being in this position is so many people like we're under the lens of so many people our our patients our family our colleagues they all are seeing what's happening and that's motivation for a lot of people. And so right. I, I do, I mean, I won't lie to you. Like I, a lot of the stuff that we're doing is motivated to get our healthcare team healthier. Like none of us want to get sick from COVID. None of us want to, uh, and, and you, we saw what has happened in New York and Italy. And, you know, when I got a colleague that's saying, hey, what, I heard you're doing this summit. I'm sitting down and telling them why. And trying to get in their ear and say what the, the benefits are. And why we all collectively, especially as healthcare providers, could be be an example and protecting ourselves. Right. right. Now, I've, I've got to get back to this. You said you haven't seen any COVID patients in the ICU in months. What are you guys doing there that's working so well? And Because <laughs> we obviously need a lot of help here in the U.S. So oh my tell God. us what to do. What are you doing that's working? So, you know, it's uh, that's a very... It's it's tough to put a finger on it, but I think the number one thing that was that benefited Canada is that we saw what was happening in the rest of the world before it hit us. Mm -hmm. So Italy, New York, Washington State, 
all were getting hit and we were preparing beforehand. So like, um, you know, we already locked down really early. Um, we, we put in measures, our hospitals increased capacity. We were, we're doing all these things. And then we didn't reopen until the curve, like the, the curves were d- downtrending. I think that was one of the key things that, in my opinion, led to the the success of what's happening in our country. And I mean, there's a lot of theories and I don't know what's what, to be honest with you, but, you know, hearing the experts on the show about, you know, population density, like we're, we're, we're the, we're, I forget, second or third largest country in the world. And we have the same population of California. Mm-hmm. You know, I think right. th- that also helps us. But um, honestly, I think it was just, the main thing was that we had time to prepare based on seeing what other countries were going through. Yeah. Yeah. I think population density really does have a lot to say about that. And I remember yeah. we you could look at the map of the U S where the cases were and like Montana and Wyoming always had like the lowest cases. And right. I've always, I've always had this fantasy of becoming a rancher out in Montana and Wyoming. So when COVID <laughs> hit, I was like, now's my time to go be a rancher out there. And it's and, a beautiful and, part of the world too. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. All right. Well, I want to switch gears for a minute here because you also, I mean, you've got an inter- such a fascinating story from so many different levels, but sort of your, your background as a person, I mean, your, your parents um, came to Edmonton from, mm. from Ghana That's and right. you grew up then in Edmonton and you have been very um, honest and emotional on your podcast about facing racism growing up mm. and how you had to fight through that and some specific examples with your father. And now here you are in, in a position of, of leadership, not just for medicine, but also for um, racism in healthcare, racism in general, and, and how to sort of help break down barriers uh, to black communities, to lower socioeconomic communities, to underserved communities. So tell me a little bit about your your journey from that standpoint and what you see as um, a, a good way to help people um, start to sort of break down those barriers to to reach those communities for preventive care and, and for better health care. Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up, Brett, because it's something that's very close to my heart. And, uh, you know, after the George Floyd killing, um, it brought so much emotion back. It brings back all the trauma you had as a youth being called the N word on ice, being, uh, you know, jumped on by older kids and and being called any name that you could think of. Um, and it, it just, it was so hurtful. It was so anger provoking. And at the end of it all, I remember telling myself, I haven't done enough. Like I really haven't done enough. I'm a, you know, one of the very few black doctors in my hospital. Like I'm in a, one of our hospital, the Ottawa hospital has the, is one of the largest hospitals in North America. And I could think of maybe half a dozen doc, black docs. And I remember thinking there was a patient I was, uh, no, I was just walking through the ICU and there was a, 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 a black patient and He's a young guy, and he, he looked looked towards me, and he asked the nurse, he's like, is that guy a doctor? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, wow, that's amazing. And I remember wow. thinking, oh, you know, that's good pride, you know, a little a bit of a role model or whatever. But then I was like, what the hell, actually? Like, why should that be surprising that 
a black man is a, a as a doctor in this hospital. And so I, I you know, I, I really got motivated, uh, Brett, to, to do my part. And part of it was just telling my story and just really illustrating what the struggles were, not only being called names, but always having to take that extra step to prove your worth. And this might seem extreme to some people, but when I look at my colleagues, I look at the journey that I, I've, I've done to get to where I am, there's always been extra extra steps, always extra steps. And so I I think, you know, as, a, as someone that got to be in a, you know, in a, a respectable position now, I feel like, hey, Black community, you could do this. You could be here. You could be in this, in this spot. You're not, you don't look at me and on and say, hey, it's cool to see a black dog. We will need more of you. We need more of you to be able to uh, treat other, uh, other, you know, black patients and to have that better understanding of what it's like for them. Because we know that, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's other illnesses as a minority, um, often the outcomes could be worse. And so to have that understanding, to have that advocacy, I, I just felt like there's a huge responsibility. And so now we, our group, we started a mentorship program for black youth, which uh, I'm really proud of. Um, I, and anytime I have a chance to speak on it, I, I, I would always try and uh, take up the opportunity. And just to let our youth know that you can do this. And yeah. one of the key messages too is the hustle is not easy. You're, you're, it's an uphill battle. But when you get here, when you go through that adversity, when you come out the other side, you are legend. You can handle so much. You will be rise and be and and accomplish wonderful things. And I I think of that when I, I think of my boys. I think of that when I see other black youth. And um, now I just feel like it's a responsibility because honestly, Brett, this sounds to a certain degree it might sound a bit uh, extreme, but so many years you're just on survival mode. Like you're just really on survival mode. You're trying to get through residency. You're trying to get through fellowship. You're trying to prove your worth when you're a new staff doc. But now is personally, now is my time and collectively it's our time to really represent and, and be that advocate. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a wonderful answer and, and really hits on a lot of different topics. I mean, you can think of whether it's, whether it's business or whether it's medicine, sort of the more you have to overcome to succeed, kind of the, the, the more skills you have when you get there and not mm -hmm. just skills of, you know, how to put in an endotracheal tube or how to start an IV, but skills, how to survive in the world and how to mm -hmm. interact with other people and how to, how to rise above it. And, and those are such important lessons. And I can just, you can sense your motivation and your, your passion for, for teaching people that. And, mm -hmm. and, and when it, but when it comes to helping people lead healthier lives, so they don't end mm -hmm. up with diabetes, so they don't end up with metabolic syndrome and end up with the ICU with COVID or a severe infection and having, trying to impact their lives. There are so many barriers when somebody is, um, in a, in an underserved area and, and lower mm -hmm. socioeconomic class. And, you know, if we're talking about eating your, your grass fed meat and your organic vegetables, um, and your organic cauliflower with your pasture raised eggs, like that message is just, that's just going to go right over their heads because they're yeah. thinking, you know, so many people are thinking, where's my next meal? Is it going to be a bag of uh, potato chips or is it going to be at the the local drive-in? Um, it, sometimes it can be sort of just too intimidating. Like, where do you even start 
when that's when you're when you're in survival mode? Where do you even start to help people start to prioritize their health and their nutrition? Um, like, what kind of advice can you think of to, to give give people to start with? Honestly, when you're in that situation, it's all about basic needs. It's like I know we're we're different countries that have different philosophies in terms of you know uh, level of socialization, but you know when yeah. you don't have a house, a reliable income, you don't you're living in in a poor uh, in a poor environment. You you got to grab whatever you could grab. So I think the fir- the first and most and important thing is to be able to have and provide through whatever means the basics, housing, uh, knowing that you will have a some form of income that you could not have to eat that bag of chips or whatever that's coming through the door. I think that's important. And I you know honestly, I don't mean to skirt the question a bit, but when, to answer your question directly, I don't know if that's the where the focus should be. Like when it comes to nutrition, like I'm all about efficiency. I'm always a, all about like where we get the biggest bang for your buck. And and I think when you, when we think of people that are marginalized and are struggling to that extent, like I think the the what they're eating is 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 a bit too. It will go under deaf ears. But people that are actually have the means who are still eating uh, the processed foods that are still eating the um, fast food um, that aren't getting out exercising. This is a market to me. Um, But I I do hear what you're saying because they are are obviously at risk too. But I think there's just so much, there's so many issues there before talking about the specific type of food um, before getting there. So sorry, yeah. I'm not answering that directly, but um, no, that makes sense. That makes sense if, you, if you're talking about like a teenager um, in that setting who's in basically survival mode, but then that teenager becomes the the 25 year old or the 30 year old with the job with the income, but they never got out of their old habits. Like Bro, that's I the time you. to intervene. It sounds like from what you're saying, like that would be the better time to that would be to try I, and address I, that. Absolutely, and a lot of that too is like you. I always uh, think about who do these kids look up to? Look at who like role models that are, that are being examples uh, for, you know, advocating for adequate nutrition, ad, uh, advocating for being active. Like that's, those are very formative years. You bring up a good point actually to be able to provide that information during those, the, during those years, knowing that like, I, I'm thinking of like a 15 year old athlete, future hockey player, future basketball player. And some of these uh, role models are saying that this is why I eat the way I eat. I eat. They're not going to forget that. Like, you know, my kids that they see, uh, I know it's mostly American fans, but Connor McDavid, number one hockey player around. If he's saying, yeah, this is the reason why I'm eating low carb. The boys are jumping on that train. (laughs) Sure. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, influencers like that and, and people who the, who the people look up to and if they're promoting taking care of yourselves in certain ways, people are going to notice. And here in the US it's like LeBron James, you know, what yeah. he says is gospel, right? So um who is that Absolutely. hockey player again? I, I I'm Connor not, McDavid. <laughs> Connor McDavid. Yeah. All right, yeah, I got to look him up. You, yeah, he's a, he's a a legend. Got to educate yeah. myself in hockey. By the way, I like the the Oilers uh, flyer in the background there. Yeah, you You're better right? believe it. But <laughs> I hate to say it, they're out of the playoffs now, but uh, li- li- we're diehard at, in this house. 
Yeah. Kind of crazy to see hockey going on in, in August and with, with, you know, COVID at least they're, they're trying and they're getting it done, I guess. Yeah. It's, the MLB is making me nervous though. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but. Oh yeah. Padres uh, all the way. Come on. Yeah. But, that's fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. The teams having to so many teams with like what, 14, 15, 16 positive tests in one team and then having to shut down their games. And uh, I don't think the season's going to last personally, but I sure hope it does. It's nice yeah. to, have something just a distraction. You know, there's so much bad news, especially here in the U.S. There's so much bad news. And that's sort of, to me, that's the power of sports, to get your mind away from the bad news and get it on human achievements. And, yeah. you know, we can still argue that athletes are paid too much money and they're they're put on too high of a pedestal when it should be people like you and it should be teachers and it should be public servants. And, you know, but but there's something to be said for educate or for um, entertainment and taking your mind off of things. And sports really plays that role. I've been loving it. I hate to, like I, I don't know if that's politically correct to say it, but I've been loving the distraction personally. It's been yeah. so refreshing. If you think about all that we've gone through in the last few months, like it's been a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, if we ever need one big huge pick me up as a as a world and certainly as a country, now's the time. Yeah. yeah. But there there's it seems like there's such an opportunity um to to impact people's lives especially when they're in underserved communities, but there are so many barriers in the way. So, I mean, we need voices like, like yours and we need role models like you to, to help lead the way. And that's why I think it's so great what you're doing with your podcast and with your research Institute and with your job as a physician and just, and just getting your message out there and sharing your energy and your passion. And, and, you know, it may not be a, here's what you have to do, A, B, C, and D, and it all gets done. It's not that easy. If it was, we mm -hmm. would have done it. But it but it starts with people like you and, and energy like yours. So so thank you for doing that. Brett, I, I really appreciate the kind words. And I, I got to tell you, what you're doing too, my friend, like getting the word out in, in a very clear, succinct message, I, it's powerful. And I, I really commend you for, for continuing to to push this agenda. And I'm, I, I know deep down these conversations are going to impact. And I honestly, what I always have a bit of um, urgency when it comes to this, because I honestly, deep down, I think this will impact lives. I really do yeah. think that people will benefit from having the, improving their metabolic health, whatever form, low carb fasting, keto. I don't care. But the fact that they're having these opportunities through these conversations, through these po podcasts, through the these, this platform, I think you're doing a world of good. And I gotta love. I gotta tell you, you got a good like interview flow too, buddy. Like, uh, <laughs> like uh, I, as a podcaster, you you uh, you notice these things, but you got like a good interview game, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. Like, <laughs> look, I mean, I, I always say it's the guest, you know, if you're having a great conversation, like, I don't want these to stop. I just want the conversation to keep going. And, and the thing I've enjoyed most about being a podcast host is just being to have these amazing conversations with amazing people. So, so thank you for taking the time to come on today. And I know you're, you're in a lot of different things. You, so you've got your podcast, you're on Twitter, uh, you've got a website. Where, where would you direct people to go to kind of hear more about you and hear what you're oh. doing? Thanks for asking, buddy. It's so solvinghealthcare.ca. You'll find everything. Um, our re most recent uh, online summit is Solving Healthcare backslash low carb. We're on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast, um, 
Facebook, uh, also on Facebook and our YouTube channel as well. So yeah, we're, we're a bit all over the place, but, uh, yeah, don't hesitate to connect with us. And once again, Brett, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for this opportunity. All right. My pleasure, Dr. Quadjo. Thank you very much and keep up the great work. You too.